0: So last time we talked about how and why the working class is in a unique position in history to not only overthrow capitalism, but to abolish class society once and for all. Um, If we're going to understand why and how the working class might accomplish this, it's important to look at what the working class has accomplished in its historical struggles, struggles which are conveniently either glossed over or completely left out of the history books After all, the very ideas of socialism and Marxism, in particular, came about because of those struggles. The ideas were forged in those struggles, and they were clarified by those struggles. Even today, as revolutionary socialists, the confidence we have in the working class to make a revolution is not some kind of blind mystical hope or some abstract theory. It is a confidence demonstrated over and over again by real events. One particularly impactful example of what workers can accomplish is the first time the working class successfully took and held independent political power and briefly ran society as it saw fit, the Paris Commune of 1871. For about two months, the workers controlled the city of Paris and showed the world a glimpse of what a socialist society might look like. They developed the world's first workers' state, participatory democracy in which the working class collectively made and executed the decisions of government. So why is it important for us to look specifically at this first example of a worker's state? And why is that term worker's state so important to revolutionary socialists? The main obstacle in the way of the working class making decisions is that it does not have state power that is uh, in the hands of the capitalists. So if the workers had state power, then they could make decisions that reflected their own needs and interests. And this leads to the question of how do they get state power and what does that look like? doesn't mean they take over the existing capitalist state. Some today will say that. They'll say that workers just need to control the US government by winning control of the White House and having representatives in Congress to carry out their interests. But a worker state is something else entirely. So how did the Paris Commune come about? Uh, What did the Commune accomplish in its brief existence? And what lessons can we take from the Paris Commune? So to answer the first question, Of how it came about, I want to go over some brief historical background. So in 1848, France was ruled by a king, and there was a huge popular uprising against the king in France, which set off a wave of similar revolutions across Europe. This involved a mass uprising of the working class all over the continent. However, all of these revolutions were crushed, and in France, the new republic was replaced by the role of a dictator who went by Emperor Napoleon III. Um, He was the nephew of the more famous Napoleon. The revolution of 1848 was a really important experience for the working class and for revolutionaries. Like previous revolutions against the monarchy, the main force and numbers behind the revolution of 1848 were the workers and peasants, but it was the capitalist class in the leadership of the revolution. And just when it seemed like the revolution was on the verge of confronting all of society's ills and the oppression of the working class Then the leaders of the revolutions made a compromise with the old order, turned around, and crushed the revolution that they had been leading. And Napoleon III provided the necessary iron-fisted leadership to co-opt the revolution, crush the workers, and prevent them from taking over society. So in the years following the 1848 revolution, the working class no longer saw the capitalist class as a worthy political leadership or potential ally to defend their interests. Workers needed to pursue their own political interests independently. By the late 1860s, Napoleon III had ruled France for almost 20 years. He maintained his power by promising the capitalists and the monarchists that only his dictatorial rule could keep the working class at bay. Meanwhile, he made occasional concessions to workers in the hopes of avoiding another revolution. This only alienated the conservatives while emboldening the workers. By the 1860s, the workers' movement had already fought many struggles and partly as a result of being repeatedly duped by capitalist revolutionary leaders, and partly as a result of its constant struggle against their bosses for a decent quality of life within industrial capitalism, socialist ideas were increasingly common in the working class. Socialism at this time was a vague catch-all term for ideologies and traditions of the working class struggling independently against capitalism. In France at this time, the two dominant socialist ideologies came from Proudhon, uh, known as Proudhonism, and Blanqui, known as Blanquiism. Basically, the Proudhonists believed they could change society by setting up uh, credit unions run by workers, which would free the working class from exploitation. And the Blanquiists believed that a group of armed revolutionaries needed to take over the existing state in a coup, and then once they controlled the state, somehow give socialism to the masses from above. At this time, Marxism was another wing of socialist ideology and did not have the same kind of clout at the time. Now in 1868, there was a big economic crash. And of course, in times like these, the contradictions in society are intensified. Uh, The following year, a strike wave began to sweep across France, which escalated through the winter and into the spring of the following year. So in July 1870, in a desperate last ditch attempt to boost his popularity, Napoleon III declared war on Prussia. Prussia, by the way, was the German kingdom that had been rising in power and was about to unify Germany and form the German Empire, which was seen by the French as a challenge to their dominance in the region. To help fight the war, the French government activated the National Guard. Now, the National Guard was an institution that had its roots back in the original French Revolution of the previous century. It was separate from the army, who were professional soldiers. Basically, the National Guard was a militia of armed civilians. In previous revolutions, they had been put together to drum up a military force to defend the capitalist revolution against the monarchy, and the National Guard continued to exist under Napoleon III, often being used to suppress working-class revolts. With the Prussian invasion on the horizon, Napoleon III revived the National Guard again and enrolled all able-bodied Parisian men to its service, appealing to French patriotism against the existential threat. The thing is the National Guard, which until now had been a middle-class fighting force, had a tradition of electing its own officers. So when it was revived in Paris and now everyone was supposed to join, a broader section of the population was now armed and organized in a democratic militia. Less than a month into the war, the French army was soundly defeated and the Prussians captured Napoleon III. When the people of Paris got wind of this, a crowd stormed the government chambers demanding the formation of a republic, Some of the opposition parties who had existed in Napoleon's government put together a so-called government of national defense and promised to hold elections later. So this was a new capitalist government, a republic, which replaced the previous capitalist government, the dictatorship of Napoleon III. By establishing or promising a republic, they were trying to appease the anger of population. The war continued, And on September 20th, 1870, the Prussians made it to Paris and began to hold it under siege. In other words, they surrounded it with their troops, didn't let any food or supplies go in or out of the city, and bombarded the city with their cannons. The siege of Paris lasted about six months, and this was a critical period in the laying of the foundations of what would become the Paris Commune, because during this time, the people of Paris were starving, they were suffering, and making all sorts of sacrifices to survive and maintain control of their city. And with the French army pretty much destroyed, the National Guard, this militia of armed civilians that elected its own officers, took matters into its own hands. They distributed guns across the population and cannons all across the different neighborhoods to protect the city. The National Guard organized itself by neighborhood where each company elected its own officer. And then the companies of a battalion elected their officer and each battalion ran one of the districts of Paris. And each battalion also elected a vigilance committee for their district made up of four men who were supposed to manage the military's affairs of the district, like building barricades and deciding where cannons and ammunition should go. Except since these vigilance committees were elected by civilians to manage their neighborhood, their duties naturally started to bleed into civilian affairs. So we can look at this as the beginning of democratic control of decision-making, and this is really the seeds of a more democratic society. Meanwhile, Parisians were getting pissed off at their own new government of national defense, which was giving the National Guard old, outdated, malfunctioning arms and equipment. On the one hand, the government of national defense didn't want to lose Paris to the Prussians, and the National Guard was critical to defending Paris. But on the other hand, the government of national defense was afraid of arming workers. So the government also used the National Guard as cannon fodder whenever they were sent out of the city to fight the Prussians in the field. During the siege, we also see political clubs springing up where people from different backgrounds came together to openly discuss political ideas. And some of the most radical participants in these political clubs and debates were women. Hunger, shelling, political debates in private and public spaces uh, continued through the siege and at this time, many of the more well-to-do families uh, of Paris left and abandoned their properties and the factories that they owned. Finally, in January 1871, the French government signed a truce with the Prussians in which they surrendered some of the major forts in the area and allowed the Prussian troops to march into Paris as a gesture of capitulation. During these negotiations, the Prussian chancellor, uh, Otto von Bismarck, who could see that an armed, angry, organized French working class was an uprising waiting to happen, gave the French government this advice. Uh, Provoke their insurrection while you still have power in order that you may crush it for good. At this point, the population of Paris was not ready to give up their city to the Prussians, they felt like they had been suffering and toiling through the siege to hold on to their city, fighting at the front lines uh, for the whole country. And now what was the point of all that if now the Prussian troops were going to be allowed to march through their city? In other words, a lot of Parisians felt betrayed by a government they never elected who did not give them the proper supplies and weapons during the war and was now just giving up. So at this point, the government of national defense dissolved itself and held elections for a new parliament this parliament was set up in another city, Bordeaux, and elected a new executive to run things in Paris. The National Guard until now, like I said, was made up of uh, companies and battalions where rank and file troops uh, who were civilians elected their own officers. And during the siege, they were electing these vigilance committees, etc. So at this point, they had taken so much responsibility for running the, the affairs of the city that they were seen largely by the general population of the city as a more legitimate form of government than the one that was now being imposed on them. Except now that the siege of Paris was over, the French government was ready to get rid of the National Guard, reacquire all of their weapons, and reestablish control over Paris. So in the early hours of March 18th, the French army regulars were sent into certain key locations around the city to quietly take control of the cannons that were distributed around the city. But women were already up on early morning shopping errands and laundry runs, and they rose the alarms and got the people into the streets to stop the takeover of their weapons. Even before the National Guard was able to respond to the situation, there were already crowds of unarmed working people putting up barricades in the streets to protect their cannons and confronting the soldiers, in some cases surrounding them and talking to them. By the time the National Guard got organized to respond, the army didn't put up much of a fight. When one general ordered his soldiers to fire on a crowd of people who were marching toward them, the soldiers just turned up their guns, pulled their general down from his horse, and turned him over to the National Guard. The Republican government in Paris had to flee to Versailles, the palace about 10 miles outside the city where, back in the days of the monarchy, the king would reside. Now that they officially had exclusive control of Paris, the Central Committee of the National Guard organized its own elections to form a commune of Paris, which was to be the new government of the city. 92 delegates were elected, each representing 20,000 people from uh, different neighborhoods in the city. The day before the elections, the Central Committee of the National Guard made the following proclamation to the people of Paris. Do not lose sight of the fact that the men who will serve you best are those whom you choose from amongst yourselves, living your life, suffering your ills. Distrust the ambitious no less than the upstart Both consult only their own interests and always end by finding themselves indispensable. Distrust also talkers, incapable of translating words into action. They sacrifice everything to a speech, an oratorial effect, an empty phrase. Avoid too those whom fortune has too highly favored, for only too rarely is he who possesses fortune disposed to look upon the working man as his brother. In short, seek men of sincere conviction, men of the people, men resolute and active, men of sense and recognized honesty. Give your preference to those who do not ostentatiously solicit your suffrages. True merit is modest, and it is for the voters to recognize their men." So this is how the commune was born, out of a common struggle among the people of Paris to defend and run their city on their own terms, a raising of their consciousness from seeing firsthand that they could only depend on themselves and not the government of the capitalists, And then an unwillingness to give up control over the city once they had had this experience and the government decided it was time to take it away. So that was how the commune was born. Let's see how it worked. There were 92 delegates elected to the commune leadership, composed of workers, journalists, artists, clerks, and shopkeepers. The average age was 37. As was the case with the National Guard's elected officers, the communards were subject to immediate recall meaning the minute the voters in a neighborhood were dissatisfied with their delegate, they could hold an immediate election to replace him. They didn't have to wait for the next scheduled election. And immediately the commune declared its internationalism by saying that the workers had no country to defend and in fact only had to defend their interests as one world class. They began to pass measures in the interests of the class. Over the course of its two-month existence, the commune made several significant sweeping changes. First it established a 10 hour workday and regulated wages. This was a a huge change compared to the past. They introduced workers' compensation for dangerous jobs. They abolished the practice of finding workers for making mistakes on the job. They banned the practices that exploited workers and the poor, such as gambling and pawning. Uh, During the siege, many starving workers had pawned off their tools. In other words, their livelihoods to buy food. Uh, The commune closed the pawn shops and made the pawnbrokers return their tools for compensation. The commune closed the night bakeries, these were bakeries that would have bread and pastries fresh and ready for the well-to-do first thing in the morning, because people in the bakeries had been working through the night. The commune declared that if you had been unable to pay your rent during the siege, that debt was forgiven, and if you had been paying rent to your landlord during the siege while you and your family were starving, the landlord had to pay you back. The commune postponed the payment of any existing debts and abolished the payment of interest. They declared that all leases could be canceled at any time at the tenant's discretion. They abolished conscription and the capitalist concept of a military, instead distributing arms across the population, reaffirming that every able-bodied man was to be armed as a member of the National Guard, and that the populations of the neighborhoods of Paris were their own defense forces and their own police force. The communists secularized schools and made education free and mandatory. They began a process of tabulating abandoned factories so that they may be occupied by the workers who had been employed there, who were to be organized in cooperative societies to run those factories. In some cases, the workers of Paris were already putting many of these things into practice, and in their workplaces, they formed factory councils to decide the nature of their work. So to put it in conventional political terms, the commune was at the same time a legislative body and an executive body and a civil service. Uh, In other words, the communards didn't just vote on laws and measures. It was also up to them to enact those measures. And they formed commissions uh, with different responsibilities to put these things into effect. And they spent most of their time not in government chambers debating, but actually all over the city being engaged with the people who had elected them to get the work done. For instance, the education committee was busy not only organizing and building schools, but also making sure the children were fed and clothed. The Labor Commission was busy not just making sure that there weren't any workplaces defying anti-exploitation measures, but also keeping track of which workplaces were abandoned so that they could be reoccupied. And most importantly, the political activity of the city was not limited just to the elected officials. The public as a whole took an active role in their own affairs and in all the activity of the commune. Every National Guard company continued to meet regularly to discuss the defense of their neighborhood and to discuss the policies of their commanders and their central committee. The culture of political clubs and public gatherings and debates that had emerged during the time of the siege was now in full bloom during the time of the commune. Though women had not been granted the right to vote, this brief revolutionary period did see some political awakening in gender relations. Uh, Women took an active part in political discussions and in organizing the defense of the city. And a number of revolutionary women organized the Women's Union for the Defense of Paris and Care of the Wounded demanding, uh, they demanded wage equality, the right to divorce and professional education for girls. Uh, They led a fight against prostitution and other forms of female exploitation and also argued for uh, doing away with the stigmas attached to children born out of wedlock. For many women active in the commune, the struggle against patriarchy was the struggle against capitalism. Uh, This was also a time when the arts were flourishing, uh, oddly enough. Artists and musicians and writers and theater groups all organized under the commune during this period. Even under siege, working people everywhere were listening to street corner speeches, reading a huge variety of newspapers being printed by people of all sorts of different ideas and opinions, and going to theaters and museums, including the Louvre, which was now open to the general public for the first time. In this brief revolutionary period, old social norms were breaking down and there was a burst of creativity and public cultural activity. Throughout all of this though, the most immediate concern of the commune was its survival. And this is where we can begin discussing uh, and addressing the third question that I posed at the beginning, which is what lessons can we take from all of this? This is particularly addressed by the fact that the commune was the first example of a society run by the workers instead of run by capitalists. And we can see it as an example of what such a society can look like, but also as an example to learn from its mistakes. So after their disastrous attempt at disarming Paris, the capitalist government was left with just 20,000 troops gathered at Versailles. These troops were disorganized, ill-equipped, and had very low morale. When the Commune was declared in Paris, the National Guard had somewhere between 25 to 50,000 men who were ready to fight and had very high morale after winning so many government troops to their side when they victoriously kicked the government out of their city. But immediately, the French Republic began gathering its forces from around the country. Part of the French treaty with the Prussians stipulated that the French weren't allowed to amass an uh, army larger than a certain number, But the French government got permission from Prussia to raise this limit. Prussia also released thousands of prisoners of war to boost the French army to basically take the city back. Uh, Meanwhile, the commune was just getting itself established. And in its first few days of existence, some of the communards were still considering the possibility that civil war with the capitalist government in Versailles was avoidable. Instead of striking the headquarters of the enemy forces while they still could, the communards wasted precious time debating subjects like how can we convince the government in Versailles to leave us alone. Uh, The commune remained isolated from the rest of France, allowing the Versailles army to refill its ranks with the country's rural peasantry, the majority of the country's population. The Versailles government had a very effective propaganda campaign that it carried out across the country, and also exported to the rest of the world, depicting Paris as a city run by rabid, bloodthirsty criminals. The Versailles government began its assault on the Commune on April 2nd, about a week into the Commune's existence. From then on, through the rest of the Commune's existence, Paris was under siege again and constant bombardment. A stalemate ensued, with clashes continuing between the capitalist government and the National Guard of the Commune over various forts and towns between Paris and Versailles. And during this time, the center of French capitalist wealth, the Bank of France, was right there in Paris, sitting on three billion francs in cash and securities, and the commune didn't touch it. They were afraid that if they seized possession of all this capital, they would condemn themselves as criminals in the eyes of the middle class and the world at large, as if they hadn't already done that. Whenever the National Guard captured enemy troops or commanders, they held them as hostages, hoping to exchange them. When the Republican government captured National Guard troops and commanders, on the other hand, they generally just shot them on the spot. As far as the Republican government was concerned, these people of the commune were just criminals and they had no rights. But despite its portrayal as a band of bloodthirsty criminals, the commune executed a total of three people over the course of its entire existence. Finally, after two months, on May 22nd, the Republican troops broke back into the city for the next seven days, known as the Bloody Week, The government forces slowly and brutally took the city back under their control, block by block. The workers of Paris still refused to give up what they had created without a fight. For these seven long days, men and women and even children were busy putting up and defending barricades in the streets. The commune's elected officials were working and fighting and dying on the front lines along with everyone else. The goal of the French Republic wasn't simply to retake control of Paris, though. They wanted to, in the words of their head executive, restore order for a generation. Their generals were intent on making an example of the Parisian working class to teach a lesson to the working class of France and the world that this is what happens if you experiment with workers democracy. As the republican forces regained control of the city, they started rounding up Parisian men, women, and even children in the streets and executing them indiscriminately, Between preceding weeks of bombardments and the street fighting and massacres of the Bloody Week, it's estimated that over 17,000 Parisians were killed. Another 70,000 were forced to flee the city as their homes and businesses were destroyed. Uh, But even this was only a temporary defeat for the working class. By the 1880s, the French working class was already organizing itself once again in pursuit of its own interests, and the commune was not forgotten. It's from the poem of a communard that we get the Internationale, the International Socialist Anthem of the Working Class. Socialists and revolutionaries around the world took all the lessons they could from the communard struggles and accomplishments to better understand the nature of the class struggle. That takes us to my final question What what are the lessons that we can take from the commune? Marx and Engels were particularly interested in the commune. They were alive at the time, and it gave them a concrete example of what a socialist state what actually looked like that until then they had only been theorizing about. So they added a new preface to the communist manifesto saying the manifesto is now in places out of date. In particular, the commune has demonstrated that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. So Marx and Engels had theorized that the working class needed to take political power to bring society to socialism, but before the commune, they were not clear on how exactly this would happen. The commune made it clear that workers can't take political power just by taking over the existing state. They had to build their own power, their own worker state from scratch, based on their own independent sources of power. The commune uh, shows us the fact that the act of mobilizing and organizing and coordinating the working class during a revolution is the beginning of a new government altogether. People may think that the running of things is too complicated, but in fact, the commune shows that running society was the easiest part the National Guard uh, with its neighborhood committees and the central committee of those committees was developing into a way for the working class to coordinate the, the defense of their own neighborhoods democratically. And once the Prussian army was out of the way and the capitalists were out of the way, the working class was able to constitute an even broader organizational body to make decisions not just about the defense of their neighborhoods, but the organization of all aspects of everyday life. This is what Marx and Engels meant when they said the commune was not about seizing the old state machinery. It was the constitution of a new state entirely, a democratic worker state. In addition to this, what people like Lenin and Trotsky took from the commune was that a lot of the communards' mistakes could have been avoided if more of the revolutionaries had come to the revolution with a clear political perspective that could inform their decisions, particularly when it came to understanding that the capitalist class would not tolerate the existence of a worker state even one that sought peaceful coexistence. Remember, m- most of the communards were not Marxists. So it may be easy for us now to see the blunders the communards made. For instance, the fact that they didn't touch the 3 billion francs in the Bank of France. But we have to remember that as the first workers' democracy, they were in completely uncharted territory. Lenin and Trotsky had the benefit not only of hindsight, but also of a carefully constructed analysis of capitalism in the state an analysis which was informed by the events of the commune itself. The Paris commune is not a blueprint for revolution. Not only was it not successful in the ways I mentioned, but the circumstances in which it came about are not likely to repeat themselves. Certainly, we can't wait for the capitalists to arm us and then move to Mars for, uh, for us to have our revolution here on Earth. But what it shows us is that workers' consciousness can develop quickly from defending a neighborhood to running the whole of society. It is through the confidence of the working class in their own potential that makes the, that potential a reality. The working class in Paris, 1871, had to step in to save itself from a major crisis of the ruling class's own making. Today, we are in another crisis of the ruling class's own making, whether it's the pandemic or the incipient economic crisis or climate change. Uh, today, we are not in a revolutionary situation. And in France, the working class had the benefit of... Uh, having a revolution only 23 years earlier in 1848 that was still alive in many people's memories. But today many people are seeing the abandonment of this system, its neglect, and so on. And workers, especially those who've been working during this pandemic, have begun to learn the hard way how this system has abandoned, endangered, and abused us to protect its interests.